Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. Divorce Dialogues brings expert guests to the airways to talk through your divorce questions and fill in the gray areas about separating. From thinking about divorce, to how to behave during divorce, to what to do after, this is Divorce Dialogues. Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Catherine Miller. I'm the founder at the Miller Law Group and director at the Center for Understanding in Conflict. And I am on a mission to change how people divorce and help them divorce with dignity. And my guest today is Diane Burroughs. Uh, Diane was with her husband for 24 years and was 50 when he left her for a younger woman. Frustrated and alone, she looked for a path to happiness in books and blogs, but no one was speaking directly to her. The midlife divorcee. Burroughs aims to be a beacon of light and humor to the newly divorced and single women over 50 with the writing of her book and left at 50.com. Welcome, Diane Burroughs. It is a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. So what, I mean, that must have been really quite a shock for you uh, to be married for such a long time and then suddenly single. Uh, what, what what did you do and and what were you looking for at that time in terms of other resources or sources of comfort and information to help you through that transition? Well, my situation was that we were also writing partners the whole way. So after I was left at 50 and we were starting to split everything up, I saw him every day at work. So he left me on a Friday. I had to work with him on a Monday. And that actually went on for a couple of years. So it was kind of a long journey, and I did get support from a lot of different places. But, you know, I had an attorney. I had a business manager. And they had advised us always to keep our money separate because we got paid the same and we split it. And so that was a big headache that wasn't there because I wasn't planning to go after him for more money or anything. And it was the same with him. There was a lot of discomfort, of course, in working with him because he left me for a woman half his age and he'd be on the phone or texting constantly and we shared a small office. So I really had to look after myself in other ways as well, you know, physically and emotionally and psychologically. That's all part of my journey also. Well, Diane, that sounds horrible, (laughs) you know, to be all of a sudden confronted with this news that you were no longer going to be a wife, but still having to see him every day. How did you cope with that? It was really, really rough um, to have to see him every day. We were under contract. and But on top of that, you know, he would ask me to bring stuff of his because he walked out with one overnight bag and left everything. Like his toothpaste and toothbrush were still beside the sink. He left all of his clothes. He left all old family photos. He just walked out of our life, but yet we were still working together. And I know I'm not the only one who has some sort of business tied to the person that's divorcing them and they are divorcing. So it's emotionally, you just have to compartmentalize. And I used to just have to kind of steal myself for every day (laughs) 
And I read a lot of books. I talked to people. I did a meditation. I started a workout class. Like I had to take care of other parts of me that, quite frankly, I hadn't been taken care of. And that was really a revelation that I had been so focused on being part of this couple that I'd kind of lost me. Yeah, you know, I think that, that there's so many things that you talk about in in your book and, and just in this conversation that are really so poignant. And I just want to highlight a couple of things just for other people who might be listening to your story. First of all, walking out with just an overnight bag is not that uncommon. Uh, women don't usually do it. It's more of a man thing in my experience, and I've been doing this for a very long time. And even, and, and I mean, I don't mean to minimize your story at all, Diane, but it, it can be just like, how the heck can you possibly do that? Just walk out with a, like a, something that would fit under your seat in front of the seat in front of you, you know, but out of our lives and not think about the impact on you, the one left behind, and even on him going forward, like that he's going to need toothpaste or whatever else he might need. And then the burden that that puts on you to be looking at all his stuff all the time. You know, we often use a four-letter word that begins with S, not stuff, (laughs) for the stuff (laughs) left behind. And, uh, and also, like, having to deal with the process of of all of that stuff and, and what it means and when he's going to get it. And, and lots of times people just want to pack it up and put it on the curb, you know. Did you have that? Were you tempted to do that? I was not tempted to pack it up and leave it on the curb. First of all, there was so much of it. There was 24 <laughs> years. That's too big of a job for me. <laughs> but, you know... It's kind of a poignant story because when he did finally move out, like eight months later, which was another whole entire story because I couldn't get him to move out, but he left like 70 pairs of pants and shirts just for me to deal with, you know, in piles when he (laughs) moved out. So I was like, well, that was the stuff I really wanted to kick to the curb. But then I had a cleaning woman. And I asked her, do you know anyone who would want all this stuff? Because it's nice. And long story short, she gave it to the pastor of her church. And he cried when he got it because he had nothing. And he was so appreciative. And so I just thought that was kind of the beginning of me realizing everything does happen for a reason. And good can come from this pain. And I couldn't see that seven months prior because I was in pain and I was really angry, of course. But as I settled into this separating from him forever, you know, new positive things like that started to creep in because I think my focus had shifted from the ugliness of what was going on to the new road ahead of me. Was the shift and the change of focus from the pain and the hurt toward the new road in front of you, was that conscious or unconscious? What did you do to encourage it? Because I think that's something that people really want if they're the ones being left to be able to focus on the future. And, and yet it's so hard in the beginning to do that. It was unconscious at first. And one of the problems was that, you know, you lose more than half of your social circle. You know, you don't do couple things with other couples. And Some friends literally said, I'm choosing him. I will not be speaking to you ever again. Oh, my gosh. So, yes. And that's so hurtful. And so 
Um, getting past that, uh, what really happened was I, I joined this dance class and there were a bunch of gals my age <laughs> trying to stay in shape. And I started to make friends outside of that old social circle through this dance class. <laughs> and I realized as I, these people, they didn't know anything about me or my ex or what had gone on. I was a new Diane, right? I was just single Diane who does this job for a living and lives in, you know, Sherman Oaks at the time. And I learned to present myself in a new way as just myself and not standing beside part of a couple, which is what I had done for a quarter of a century. So that was both a little scary at first, but also ultimately really freeing because when people say, hey, how do you know the host? That was what we were talking about and not this ugliness and breakup and who's going to be whose friends and who's keeping this artwork and who's taking it, you know. Mm -hmm. One thing that previous guests have talked about is the value of having a creative outlet. And when I, I hear you talking about the dance class, I mean, I don't think you became a professional dancer. At least that, that's not part of your bio. <laughs> no, far from it. <laughs> but there was that sort of creativity of finding the, the movement and, and the dance and, and also the social and then the definition of yourself instead of the definition of being half this couple. Now you're defining yourself as a whole in and of yourself. Exactly. Yeah, that's and really... And I also began a blog that I had no idea how to do a blog. <laughs> I wanted it to call Left at 50, and that name was available. And there was a young man, this was years ago, like eight years ago, on GoDaddy, who I called for help at 1030 at night. And do you know, his mom was around the age of 50, and his dad had left his mom. And this young man was determined to help me get this thing go live. And he stayed on the phone with me for like an hour. Wow. And, you know, that's, the kind of magic that starts to happen, like what are the chances? I don't know how many times in the last eight years I've said, what are the chances? What are the chances? <laughs> you know, and that was one of the big, what are the chances on this whole journey? That's amazing. I'm Catherine Miller, and you're listening to Divorce Dialogues. We're here on WVOX 1460 AM alternate Wednesdays from 5 to 5.30, and we're also available as a podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And all episodes are also available on the podcast website, divorcedialogues.com. And I'm talking today with Diane Burroughs about her book, Restarting Your Life When You're No Longer a Wife and Dealing with Divorce when your spouse leaves you at the age of 50. And, you know, uh, Diane, you know, one other thing that you talked about was having to bring things for your ex-husband. And and another thing that I find that, and again, this is, in my experience, more often men do this than women, but, and I'm asking you if this is your experience, sometimes when a couple parts, and especially if there's another party involved and there's a new relationship, that the the wife has just been the best friend for such a long period of time. And when things start to go wrong, sometimes the now ex comes back to his first wife and says, you know, and ask for advice, which is galling <laughs> oh for God. the, for the, for the first wife. And I'm wondering if that happened to you, but it's sort of like being asked to bring the toothpaste or bring that belt or, you know, whatever else was going on in, in the everyday life. You're still part of his, of his experience day to day, just not in a different role. 
That is 100% my experience. (laughs) You know, from him texting me and saying, can you bring me, you know, these shoes and these jeans and this shirt to work with this belt? And I would do it. Like, I was so used to being the doer. Instead of saying, you know, go let your new young chicky babe buy you new things, I just, like on autopilot, as the doer in the relationship, which he ultimately obviously resented me for, but I just did it. But the ultimate story is when we were at work and he was acting strange. He was walking around outside and in our office with the door closed. And I went in there and said, what's going on? And he said, you need to take me to a emergency room. I'm having pains all over my body. And he was poking himself. And I just said, we're in the middle of a work day. I can't take you to an emergency room. I What's really going on? And it turned out, I know you're going to hate me for doing this, but he could not find a permanent place to live. He'd been living with a friend who was getting married. He had to get out. I went online as the doer and I found him a fully furnished apartment that was available that he could see at eight o'clock the next morning. And that was where he moved in and lived for a couple of years. So I I have to be honest that the person who left me for a younger woman, I found him a place to live in about, you know, 20 minutes in the middle of a work day. So, Diane Burroughs, when did that change and how? It changed gradually over that first year because I think I moved from shock into the anger phase. (laughs) And I think that was really helpful. And I don't mean like I was calling him up and screaming at him. I wasn't. But I was able to express to myself and other close friends that I was incredibly angry that he had done this to us. But also, I had to give up the hope that he was ever changing his mind and coming back, that this was just a midlife crisis. I had to believe for sure that this was it. And that was also difficult, but it was also very freeing for me that I could just move on and not take care of this person anymore, not be bringing his clothes and finding him an apartment anymore. So that really came to a head on that first Valentine's Day when it was approaching and he had not moved out any of his things. And I just said, you know, if you don't move your things out, I'm jumping off the third floor balcony. I will not wake up and see your toothpaste and toothbrush on Valentine's morning. You have to get out. And I didn't really mean that I was actually going to jump off the balcony, but I had just had it. I had it. I couldn't wake up to that. And so eventually he finally begrudgingly got a moving van and moving people, which I also had to find for him. It's horrible to admit. So he was just incapable of doing anything after he made this big decision. I, I don't know if you can speak to that, but it was just strange. Wouldn't you be ecstatic and move out the next day and go on your happy life with your young wife that he originally, he married, but then the marriage only lasted a year, but that's another whole story. It was But not surprising. Not surprising. <laughs> not yeah. surprising, because it sounds like the two of you had gotten into a, a pattern of, of working together where you were, as you put it, the doer, and he was very dependent on that, and that it became a, a dynamic that didn't work for either of you, but you didn't know it really until he 
left and looking for something more exciting, probably. And, you know, love is a powerful drug. What it, what it, it does is it takes over and it makes people feel like everything is going to be okay and not necessarily think through the implications of their behavior or what their future is. And she probably wasn't terribly interested in doing the things he needed done and he didn't know how to do them and he was still counting on you. And you just did the stuff that needed to be done thinking, well, someone needs to do this in order for our partnership to move forward and kind of faded into the wallpaper. I mean, no offense by that. And until he realized he really needed it. Exactly. So it sounds like <laughs> he wasn't capable of calling a moving van or finding an apartment. Yeah. I mean, that crazy as that sounds. I'm Catherine Miller, and you're listening to Divorce Dialogues. We're here on WBRX 1460 AM every other Wednesday from 5 to 5.30, and also as a podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And I'm talking today with Diane Burroughs about her book, Restarting Your Life When You Are No Longer a Wife, and about her blog, Left at 50, that's 50.com. And Diane, if people want to learn more about you or about your book, how can they do that? They can go to Amazon Books or Kindle, and they can always go to leftat50.com, where that has been my blog. And there's also funny videos of new things I've tried along the way. And I go into some, you know, very interesting topics of just what this journey has been like. So there's uh, all of those resources. What is one of the funniest things that's that's happened or that you've experienced as a result of this journey? <laughs> There's a lot, but uh, <laughs> I would say the dating world in this age category has led me to some strange experiences. <laughs> and you Would know, you be willing to share an experience or two? I met this very nice man at a friend's party, and he said, do you want to go out sometime? So I said, sure. And He called and we picked a day and then I didn't hear from him. And then like two weeks later, a lady friend of his called me and said, well, he's nervous because he hasn't been out on a date in a long time. So he just wanted to call me, call you, have me call you and, you know, just let you know that, you know, he really wants to date you. I'm like, well, that's a little strange, uh, red flaggy right there. (laughs) Long story short, we go out on the date and he picks me up. And the passenger seat is full of garbage and the car is filthy. And he says, where do you want to go eat? And I'm thinking, but you asked me out. You didn't plan anywhere to eat? And your car is filthy? (laughs) So then I pick a place and we go there and we sit down and he goes, well, I don't know what any of this food is, so you should order for me. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to order for you. And then he reveals that he recently had some sort of surgery and he has a tube and it's still oozing. Oh my God, sexy. <laughs> oh, the food got kind of cold after that. <laughs> and I just wanted to get out of there. And then he said, do you want to go for ice cream? And I really didn't, but I just, it was all so sad at that point. I thought maybe ice cream can at least salvage part of this night for me. And so, oh, my God, we went for a scoop. And then I just, you know, I ran out of that car so fast that I had my key in my hand to get back to my little dog in my apartment. I was just like, 
Oozing is not the word I expected to hear on a date. (laughs) At least not the first one. (laughs) So one thing that you talk about is the doubt monster. What is the doubt monster and how do you deal with it? It changed, but it started out like I doubted that I could remake my own life and career. I doubted that I would ever find somebody. And I also had doubts about even dating to find somebody. Like, I just doubted that anyone could ever love me again, you know, because I was a woman over 50. And I had no idea where I was going to live. I had doubts about, you know, do I leave Los Angeles? Do I live near the beach? Like, what do I do? So there were just a lot of doubts about this whole restarting my life, you know? Yeah. Because it was so unexpected. And I was just like, man, how am I really going to do this? And gradually, you know, as you chip away at all the little things and big things that you have to do, like, you know, sell a house, rewrite your will, which was a brutal day for me, then I was able to slowly stop doubting myself just by doing. So I went from doubting to doing, like you're just going to get up and you're going to do these. These are the things that need to be done to permanently separate from this union. And I just started, you know, checking things off the list. And as I did, of course, the doubt subsided because I'm achieving these things. And it's giving me more confidence that I do know myself because I realized I put off a lot of dreams during the 24 years of this relationship because, you know, you're part of a couple and you have couple dreams and and now that's over. So I could go back to those things and revisit them as a new person because I'm in a different decade of life and the path ahead is one that I can choose. It's not dependent on anybody. And so that was very freeing, but it was a process. And do you do you still struggle with that, or do you feel that you've kind of mastered it, the doubt monster? No, I don't think I've mastered it. No, I still will have the doubt monster creep back in. <laughs> but, you know, that voice has gotten less and, and more quiet than it was at the beginning. But, yes, you know, everything is new. This is a very different world we live in. <laughs> And so, you know, it's just during the whole shutdown and everything, things can creep in because you're not as social and you're li- I was living more in my head. But then, you know, I was writing this book and that was really helpful. Yeah, that sounds like it must have been very cathartic for you. It really has been. Just to say that I self-published a book. I mean, I never in a million years was that in my vocabulary. And now it is. So if there are people out there, particularly women listening, who are experiencing divorce at, you know, what's commonly called gray divorce these days, although I'm not sure I love that term, you know, (laughs) divorce sort of in middle and, you know, the second half of life maybe, what advice do you have for them that they might not necessarily think of? Well, the number one is you are going to not just be okay, you're going to be better than you were in the marriage. You're going to be so much better. Even though you can't see it now, you do believe in yourself. 
and you do have plans and goals. You've just kind of kicked them under the bed for a while, but they're there. But when everything is hitting you, of course you can't see it. You can't see it. But the main thing is you will get through this and you will restart your life. And it's going to be grand in ways things are coming to you that you don't even see yet because you're not looking there. You know, you're not looking at the horizon. You're looking at, you know, redoing the will, you know, and things that are painful and not a lot of fun. But you will find yourself. You know who yourself is. And you've always been that person. And that person has been waiting to re-emerge for all this time. And you will get through it. But number one, take care of you. Don't like jump into another relationship and start caring for another person. You know, get nice and strong and get happy with who you are and keep moving and try new things to cook or open up that door, you know, to this whole world that's been closed. I love what you're saying about how things are coming to you that you don't even see. You don't even see that they're there. They're there and you don't even see them yet because you're you're just not looking. I think that's really, really powerful advice for people. All right, Diane Burroughs, her book is Restarting Your Life When You're No Longer a Wife, available on Amazon as well as on Kindle. And Diane Burroughs, thank you so much for being our guest on Divorce Dialogues. Thank you. It's been my pleasure.